Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and it is uh, time for Hour 2 of Guy Talk, which I always look forward to as my friends gather around the table. They always sit in the very same exact positions, so I know exactly uh, who's shown up. Uh, <laughs> the professor, the pastor, and the Sunday school teacher are all here once again for Hour 2. Greg B., Tom P., and Jeff V. That's the team. Gentlemen, welcome yeah, we once again. We are glad to be here, Bill. I know you are. Yeah. I genuinely believe that. So, thank you. Indeed. Are you guys black and white thinkers? I am. Up to a point. Yeah. And when it comes to Jesus, I'm black and white. In yeah. the scriptures, I'm pretty black and white. In terms of all the counseling you've done with people, there's a lot of nuances you've got to work through to get to the black and white. And so it doesn't always work out. You can't initially tell what's wrong or what needs are there. And uh, with woodworking, I'm definitely nuanced. You know, I like to build things. Mm-hmm. I always saw the difference between black and white in that gray area is, is called compromise. And I don't see compromise in the Bible. None. There is gray area, though, that, that we deal with when we don't have enough information. Right. And it's not that clear. So we have to acknowledge that fact, um, that there is a distance between those two. The The advantage, I think, with this show, Bill, and what you're trying to do and what these guys are trying to do, and the reason I respect them so much, they're honest with the Word of God. I've been in pastors' meetings where pastors are not honest with the Word of God. They're honest with their denominational background. They're honest with their own mm-hmm. theology. But they're not. They, they look at the Word, and then they try to twist it to get it to say what they want. I don't hear any of that here, and that's why I think this is effective. Mm-hmm. All right. John 6, verse 44 says, mm-hmm. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, mm-hmm. and I will raise him up on the last day. What does it mean that God draws us to salvation? I think that that begins before, and we talked about this last Tuesday, but that it happens before you ever are born, that you are on the heart of God. God has a purpose for your life. In the moment that he brings you into the world, he's like the hound of heaven, that he begins to draw you, to bring you to a point where you seriously consider the claims of the gospel, because he knows that when you embrace the gospel, receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, he can give you back your true self, who he uh, created you to be. Mm, lovely. I'm looking at the Greek word, and I love it because it can be translated as draw or drag. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, it says that here. And I think the point is, how many people do you know that have come to Jesus and got drugged by the Holy Spirit to that moment? Hmm. Probably a lot. I mean, was Saul drugged or dragged? Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, drugged. <laughs> <Listen> to me. <laughs> but he was dropped. He was dropped, yeah. yeah. Dropped well, off the horse. But, yeah. but I look at my own life, and like you said, before I was even born, the Lord was moving. Mm-hmm. I look back and I can see now, and I wish every Christian could do this, because I can go clear back uh, to the early part of my life and see things that came together at certain times that only the Holy Spirit could have done, so that eventually I would wake up. I was 22 years old when I finally woke up to Jesus in the fullest sense. I knew all about Jesus. I loved Jesus. I loved the Bible. But I hadn't surrendered to Jesus. At 22, I did. This morning, I met with with, uh, a group of men, and they were going through what's called phase two of Heart of a Warrior, which is all about 
understand what your wiring is, but they're putting together a personal timeline. So the first step of doing that was writing out their life journal, identifying those critical incidents that, that uh, were used to shape them, good or bad. And so they were presenting their findings. And one of the, the things that came out was seeing the fingerprints of God all through their story that they didn't recognize except when they looked back in retrospect and saw those fingerprints. That's what I believe John 44 is talking about, mm. is the fingerprints of God in your life. Interesting. So this is um, a, actually a very large theological debate. Does God draw some to himself or is he drawing all to himself? And so we, we have to get into that issue a little bit in the sense that this, that that one side will say, oh, see, you can't come to God unless you draw him. But I, I for, to that, I counter John 12 says that Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. I totally agree that God is the first mover that we've just mm-hmm. talked about. Sure. Now, the question is, does God truly wish that none should perish and therefore he is working and drawing every single person or is he only drawing a few? And I scan scripture and I see a lot of examples of the way that God is drawing all men That's to right. himself. He puts eternity in men's hearts. He sends the Holy Spirit out to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. The church is supposed to go out and preach the gospel to the whole world. Sure. Uh, he's written the laws on men's hearts. I think God is working in every single person's heart and then and drawing all men to himself. Some respond in faith. Others refuse to believe, they don't believe, and therefore they're going to perish. And that's because of the greatest gift he's given us, which is free will. Correct. And so you can deny, you can reject, you can ignore the gospel, but it doesn't mean that God's going to stop drawing you to the gospel. And, you know, you go to the end of the story, the day of judgment, when we, we, the believers uh, don't come into judgment any longer, our salvation is done. It's a different thing for us. But for mm-hmm. the unbeliever, there isn't going to be an unbeliever that can say, this isn't fair. You didn't give me a chance. I didn't really know. Because the Lord has done everything in every person's life to give them an opportunity in one form or another. I don't always see it. You don't see it. But I know the Lord's fair. You know, Romans 1 says in response to that, that all creation declares God's glory so that man is without excuse. Yeah. We should, in other words... Man opens his eyes, he sees the created world around him, and and we should know inherently that there is a creator behind this creation. Just as if you looked at a painting and you knew someone painted it or a statue and knew, no, someone sculpted that, so too we look at creation and we know inherently that someone created it so that man is without excuse. Well, that's the advantage we have in evangelism. You know, it's not like we're bringing up a topic that nobody's ever heard of because eternity is already in their heart. <laughs> That's right. What we do is we appeal to what we know the Scripture says is already there, and that is that longing to go beyond death, that death should not be the end. And I usually start a lot of conversations with people of uh, Islam or other backgrounds starting right there. I don't start necessarily with the, the gospel message of Jesus on the cross. We get there, but I start with... Tell me about your expectation of what happens at death. Do you think there's life beyond death? And almost everybody I talk to says yes, but I don't know what that means. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the ways to start these conversations is to simply ask a question that rests on 
Ecclesiastes 3.11, yeah. that God's place eternity. And a question with something like this, have you ever asked yourself what your purpose is? Yeah. Have you ever been in a quandary about whether or not you're making any progress? Have you ever thought to yourself, what's going to happen to me after I die? Where do you think that comes from? It comes from the fact that God gave you a sense of the eternal in your life. Absolutely. You know, every culture on every continent in every century has had some understanding of life after physical death. So they build giant pyramids and fill it with treasures for the afterlife, right? Mm -hmm. They may not have understood, you know, the, the biblical reality of the life that comes after we die, but they had an idea of it. And yeah. I think most people do. It's interesting. When I wrote the first book that I put out, Stepping into Eternity, Encountering Jesus, the Moment of Death, what I was amazed at are the number of hospice nurses hmm. that got a hold of me after they read it and said, this is precisely what we're seeing at death with people. We just don't know who to talk to about it or how to identify it. Mm -hmm. But it goes back to what you've talked about, Greg, what we've talked about here, those three basic questions over and over, you know, you know, uh, purpose, progress, and permanence. Exactly. Why am I here? Where am I going when I die? You know, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty common. Yeah. All right. Here's an interesting question. What is a jot and a tittle besides what you're getting from me for Christmas? <laughs> you mean you haven't gotten it yet? No, no. You okay. guys are, for me, you're getting a jot and a tittle. <laughs> I don't I know what that is. I thought we were going to get coal. No, you probably that's probably what it, I what it is. I think, and and correct me if I'm wrong, guys, I don't know for sure, but I think it's the style of writing that scribes used, jot and tittle. It says basically not one jot or tittle will disappear until yeah. right. you know heaven, uh, God's words is fulfilled. I can't remember the rest of the verse. But I think it's a reference to the style of how they wrote Hebrew, the Hebrew language okay. on the scrolls. Yeah, which was a discipline. It was. It was a high, uh, profession, wasn't it? Anybody? As I was speaking, uh, hopefully you guys are... We're looking it up. Okay. <laughs> what? You got anything to do to fill time? Well, I, I actually did look it up. It says a jot is the 10th letter in the Hebrew language, and it's also the smallest, but that's all I could find out. All right. And you, you couldn't find a tittle? Yeah, jot and <laughs> no, tittle, it says, is countable and uncountable. Uh, for instance, often preceded by every, uh, a smallest detail, uncountable, the smallest detail collectively, it says. I don't think most of us realize, and the reason the scriptures are so accurate is that if I was a scribe, you know, I'm working under somebody uh, in Judaism, and when I would copy the scriptures, I'd copy one page or one section at a time, and then those scribes would go over it to make sure that every jot and every tittle was correct. And it was drawn correctly, it was the correct. If it wasn't, you know what they did with it? They burned it up, and they started over. That's why the Dead Sea Scrolls have amazed us, because they're so accurate with what we have, like in the book of Isaiah— and elsewhere in the scriptures. Mm. I did see a cartoon of a, a monk asleep at his desk, and the supervisor came up and said, the copying machine went down. <laughs> <laughs> I was at the Museum of the Bible. That's good. And there was a that. Jewish scribe there uh, copying the scroll of Isaiah. Wow. Uh, oh, and it was my. a demonstration. It was fascinating, actually. <clears throat> wow. All right, here's a question. So does a person disappoint God when he refuses God because God wanted him to be saved. So the person wasn't saved, and the question is, does that disappoint God? Well, I think we're. I think it's a follow-up to that drawing God, only yep. God can draw. Mm. So, okay, let's say the person's drawn. I think if I'm reading this question correctly, uh, does that person disappoint God when he 
is refusing yeah. because God wanted him to be saved. I, I think so. I think that's an accurate uh, uh, characterization. God wishes none to perish. He loves all. His His heart, his desire is that you would just believe that in, in his son, in, that, in his work on the cross and be saved. That is God's heart. And and when someone isn't saved, I think God's heart is broken. Well, we take a look at the, the phrase in, in the Bible of grieving the Holy Spirit. So here the Holy Spirit is a member of the Trinity. So apparently the members of the Trinity can be grieved. So I suspect that God grieves when man chooses not the gift that he's willing to give him, but the life that he's willing to embrace and, as a substitute for that gift. Mm-hmm. My favorite scripture is John 11. Lazarus being raised from the dead. And there we have the shortest scripture verse of all, Jesus wept. And I think that what we see, Jesus being truly God and truly man, the emotion is there for people to be saved. And everybody says, well, why was Jesus crying? And there's a lot of speculation. But you're dealing with a lot of people that were there who didn't believe that he had the power to raise the dead. And he did. And they still didn't believe. Hmm. Hmm. All right. We are looking for your question. Keep them coming. These are great questions. 877 9 Three three two four eight four eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. Any question you have, send it over to Guy Talk. We're ready for it. We'll take a short break and be right back. Oh, there's so much sadness and desperation and loneliness. Especially at Christmas time, it seems to me that there is almost like a big magnifying glass on the world, and we see problems just magnified, and we see people in their desperate situations almost worse than ever. But there is something we can do about it. And when we think of the story of Jesus, that is the story of hope. And if you have a story to tell, and you can give hope to someone this year by sharing their story, we want you to do it. You can go do that at MyFaithRadio.com. I encourage you to do it. Welcome to the show. It is time for more Guy Talk, plenty of Guy Talk. Or Guys Who Talk, we've got Greg B., Tom P., Jeff V. That's the team. It's a solid team. Um, So any question you have, they will tackle. So... What should we learn from the account of Daniel in the lion's den, besides the lions didn't eat him? Oh, my. I mean, we don't have enough time to even talk about that. When you think about it, you know, Daniel was willing literally to go to his death without compromising his faith. And, of course, the lions were controlled by the Lord sent his angels to control the lions. And, you know, they were absolutely surprised that he, that he was still alive the next day. Same thing with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And I think it's such a good uh, illustration for us. And I love Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego where they said to Nebuchadnezzar, you know, whether our God, our God can save us, but whether he does or not, know this, O king, we will not bow down and worship you. We only have one God. And I think, wow, what great lessons because most of us can talk a good game about our faith until we're put in a situation where we could lose our life or we could get beat up or we could get hurt. And that's where you find out how strong your faith really is. I think there's a few examples in Scripture where you see righteous people 
decide whether or not they're going to obey God or whether they're going to obey man. Daniel is one of them. He was commanded by men not to pray to God, but he followed God. Yeah, Rack- it wasn't the first time he did that. No, you know. you're right. At Rackshack and Benny, that's what his friends call him, by the way, the Rackshack <laughs> like and it. Benny. Yeah. They did not bow down to the statue. They didn't obey God or man. One of my favorite is in Acts chapter 5 when the apostles are arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin. Remember, the angel comes and then lets them out. And um, and they go and it says, you need to go and preach in the name of Jesus again. So they go and preach again. And the, so the Sanhedrin's arrest them again. And they say, <laughs> we told you not to preach in this name. And Peter says, shall we obey God or men? Right? Yep. And so these are the instances where even though God says in, in Romans, for example, to submit to the authority that's over you, to pay taxes that are taxes, look, we should be great citizens that obey the authority over us until things like we just talked about. They yeah. say, don't preach in this name. You can't pray. You can't worship God. Then you say, no, I'm going to obey God and not man. And those tests are are becoming more and more frequent in they our are. society right now. They are. They it are. can cost you a job. It can cost you uh, your your income. It can cost you your reputation just for making a simple statement of, of faith. Yep. All right. Let's see here. These are great, great questions coming in. 877-933-2484. How can Jesus say that he's never lost any of his sheep? when Judas committed suicide? Well, if you take a look at his prayer uh, in John chapter 17, he knew that Judas, he says, I've, I've kept all that have, have you have given me, Father, except Judas, who he knew was going to betray him. So he acknowledged the fact that Judas was lost. So, in John 17. You know, I've never thought of this before, but... Judas really wasn't one of his sheep now, was he? Mm. He was never a, a believer. Uh, he never believed. I don't, I don't think Jesus, uh, Judas was saved. Um, I, I, I've concluded that from Scripture. I know some do, but his sheep know his voice and they follow him. The sheep yeah. go through the gate, which is Jesus, into the, into the pen. And so uh, remember, the lost people are described as sheep without a shepherd, Saved people are actually described in Scripture as sheep with a shepherd. I think Judas was one of the lost sheep. See, I think this is an assurance verse. We talk about salvation assurance. This is an assurance verse because if we hear Jesus' voice, we're not going to be lost. He's going to get us home. We're going to get there. It's when we don't hear his voice that we don't know where to go. Yeah, Here's what it says in John 17, starting with verse 10. All mine are, this is his prayer to the Heavenly Father. This is Jesus praying. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. They may be one, even as you are one. Uh, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. The scripture might be fulfilled. And, of course, he's referring to, to Judas. Right. There you go. Uh, I'm trying to find the passage where Jesus says to Judas to go do what you must do at the at the supper. And he says something to the effect that that Satan had filled him. Yep. 
Help me find that. Thir- John 13, as, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. So if Satan has filled him, is he one of the sheep? Yeah, I think it goes back to that John, uh, what was it? John, 17. John 17 yeah. passage as well, that he kept all of them except the one who was never with them. He was never in the fold. He was never one of the sheep. He was never one that the Father gave to Jesus. And and so I think that language that you just read, Greg, was was clear. And 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 this is one of the reasons, by the way, by the way, that I do not believe that Judas was saved, is that Satan did enter him. Um and and I think he was the one doomed to destruction you just read as yep. well. So yeah. So when Jesus was sending out all the disciples <clears throat> And giving them power and authority to do miracles and things. Are we assuming that Judas might have been one of the 12 that was doing that very thing he gave power and authority to go do? It's possible, but we have to understand that he, the Holy Spirit was not given to them yet. So it's very possible that, that Judas could have had the capacity given to him by Jesus to go out and do what he needed to do. How he responded to him, that was fully up to him. But the Holy Spirit was not in him so I think that if, if the Holy Spirit were him, then that'd be a serious question. I, I agree with that. Yeah. All right, 877-933-2484. We've got a question for the Guide Talk panel, the esteemed panel. Uh, let me know what, what it is. Again, 877-933-2484. Gentlemen, uh, can you explain what the Tower of the Flock is and how it's related to the birth of Christ? The Tower of the Flock. Yeah. Is there a reference a verse? Or? Well, it's, it's, I guess, in, in Israel, um, it's the Tower of the Flock or the Shepherd's Field in Bethlehem. Um, apparently, it's... I've never heard that phrase. Okay. Yeah. No, I honestly haven't either. All right. Um, I have not look, either. Look at First Chronicles 11.7, see if that helps. All right. That's... Some serious uh, stumping going on, but I'm stumped too. It's been an interesting day, hasn't it, Bill? Yeah, it really has. David Thanks lived for, in the stronghold, therefore it was called the city of David. That's verse 7. Okay. And I, I think there was some reference um, as the tower of the flock, but that's not nothing that shows up in Scripture. So mm. we can look the other direction okay. and say, mm, we, we, we don't think that's a biblically based. Oh, this is, this is, you know what this is? What is it? This is the special place uh, that some believe was the place where the sheep that were going to be delivered to the, for sacrifices were raised. And it was located, it says here, located close to the road between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. And yeah, there's... But there's not a scriptural reference. No, to it. this is and, about their culture. And I, I have in looked history. into this whole idea that uh, one of the reasons <laughs> Jesus was born in Bethlehem because there was these special sheep here and so on and so forth. And I've read accounts for in favor of this, but I've also read accounts that says no, this isn't historical. This isn't accurate. This is something made up to kind of embellish the whole story of Jesus being the Lamb of God being raised in Bethlehem, and there are special sheep there being raised, and so on and so forth. So um, I remember looking at this a number of years ago, and I I don't really remember what I concluded if I believed it was an actual place or thought it was just kind of more of a uh, a story, a narrative that was made up to kind of embellish the Christmas story. So. Um, I'm going to need to look into that more now. 
All right, here's a question. Was Daniel uh, in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Daniel? Yeah. He was not doesn't present. reference that. He was yeah. not present that day, was Correct. he? Correct. No. No. No, because it also says at one point in Daniel that there was a fourth man in the furnace. So we know there was three men in the furnace. Rack, Shadrach, my friend. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Correct. Benny. <laughs> and then Benny. And then the fourth man, the one who appears like a son of God, or no, yeah. son of son man. Son of man. And uh, and that was most likely Jesus, by the yes. way. I don't know what you guys think, a oh, pre-incarnate Jesus Christ who was in there with them. So we know that there was four figures in there, including the three and then Christ. To mm-hmm. me, the biggest mystery verse in the entire Bible is the night Jesus rose from the dead on the road to Emmaus. And he's talking with the two disciples, and he explains to them all that the Scripture had to say about him. What I like to have those verses— you know, but they're there totally in the Old Testament. Agree. It's loaded with stuff, and Jesus was there in all of it. Mm-hmm. You'll be able to ask him one day. I know I will. I'm looking forward to he's that, gonna honestly. Be, he's going to be asking a lot of questions. <laughs> yes. He's going to be hogging. You know, it's like that kid in class that always raises their hand first. And Michael's going to say, oh, here comes Tom. Uh, I know. It's just Tom Parrish again. <laughs> my mother kept my gray cards. Yeah. My kindergarten gray card says, Tommy's a very nice boy, but he talks to his neighbors too much. So, really? This has been going on for a number of years. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. All right, here's a question. Is there a difference between praying in the Spirit and praying in tongues? First Corinthians 12 and 14 are kind of the two chapters that describe these spiritual gifts, including uh, many details about the gift of tongues. I think the language that is used, Paul says, I will pray in with my mind, and then I will pray with my spirit, meaning, I think, in tongues. I think he uses those two phrases interchangeably in in 1 Corinthians 14. Do you think Jeff if there if if it's understood that tongues is a heavenly language why would it be pluralized? Well, I think I don't think it's a heavenly language. No, I, I think either. it's a um I think the context which we first use see that word tongues is at Pentecost yeah. where it says and each heard them in, in his own, own yeah. tongue or in his own language. Languages so I, that they had not learned previously. Correct, yeah. correct. And so I think they are earthly languages. Yeah. So, look, there's a, a lot. Maybe we should do a whole half hour sometime just on tongues or gifts of the spirits or something because there's a lot that you could talk about there. Yeah. But um, remember, one of the admonitions of Paul in this chapter in 1 Corinthians 14 is that the gift of tongues was being abused even back then. And he says, look, if you're going to have someone speak in tongues, then two or three, and then only with interpretation. So God is a God of order. That's how Paul Mm -hmm. described how the gift of tongues should be used, and then two or three, and then only with interpretation. But that doesn't mean individually. He said, I would pray with my in tongues to God on his own and also with his mind. So I have a sense that Paul prayed both with his mind and with a tongue, a language that he potentially may or may not have understood. So. I don't think most Christians know this, but tongues is not unique to Christianity. You have Hindus who can speak in, or pray or speak in tongues. You have other languages. But Paul puts it together here with the, the spirit, and we talks about the spirit and in tongues. In other words, without being the drawn and guided by the Holy Spirit, it it's really just uh, it's not a phenomenon that doesn't occur elsewhere. So tongues by itself has always got to be attached to the Word of God and to the Spirit. Yeah, they're gifts of the Spirit. And in fact, right. in 14, it says that he gives these gifts just as the Spirit 
determines. So you can't teach the gift of tongues. You can't learn it. It's You, you either can't pray for it either. can't pray for it. Well, yes. Paul actually says if you have some of the lower gifts, pray for other yeah. gifts. Yeah, he does I, say that, yeah, I think, it, someplace. Don't you important. think that was a hyperbolic statement, though? I mean, for praying for—he was just saying that, the, that all of the gifts are important. I, 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 all the gifts are important. Remember, the key here, one of the keys— there's many keys, I guess, with gifts, is that we're all one body and there's all different parts. Mm-hmm. We're all different parts of the same body and we've all been gifted uniquely for the uh, building up of the body. So um, I think that's one of the lessons to the learn. Mosaic the mosaic of gifts. ministry. That's exactly right. All right. We're after a short break, we'll be back with lots more Guide Talk. 877-933-2484. That's the magic number to text your question over. And we will do our very best to answer it. I've got Greg B., Tom P., Jeff V. Be right back. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car, what's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arnold. All right, we're back with more Guy Talk. Let me know. I know you got a question. Maybe you're just, maybe you've heard something in the show you'd like more clarification on. Here's a comment that was brought up based on what we just talked about when we were talking about speaking in tongues or speaking in the spirit. In my mind, speaking in tongues is the ancient spiritual equivalent of one language understood by all who hear it as if they have someone in their ear translating it for them. So that question would kind of assumes that everybody speaking in tongues is speaking the same language, but everybody has the potential to hear it, no matter what language they were taught or grew up in, um, as enabled by the Spirit. So when Acts says, and everybody heard them in their same same language or same tongue, that's what he's referring to. I've never thought of it that way. I kind of assume that when you were speaking, um, people heard it in their same language, but um, I don't know what to think about this. Is is tongues one language, kind of an ancient language, maybe pre-Babel kind of thing that people understand? Why would it be plural then, again? Yeah, that's true. It wouldn't be just a tongue. All right. Jesus taught in parables that I would not see nor ear hear that they shall not be saved. Wait, I don't know if I read that right. That's not what that verse teaches. Mm-mm. No. What neither I has seen or ear has heard. How does that verse finish? Um, no, I have seen no ear. Isn't that the unsearchable... You know, um, what the Spirit says to the yeah. churches, it's the it's a it's a, a phrase in Revelation at the end of each of the um, letters to the Revelation. Um, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But the eyes and ears part. I'm looking up. It is written, "What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him." So, First yeah. Corinthians two okay. nine. Two nine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what's the, what's the but I didn't hear a question related well, I, to that verse. We found the yeah, verse. Yeah. Um, I, I think the question feels confusing to me, actually. So I, I don't know if I, can, if I can ask the question correctly. So 
Whoever asked that question, if you could possibly reframe it, because okay. I'm a little I'm a little lost right now. Let me let me just describe when when I use this passage. Uh, it's typically related uh, to the end times because he says, "The eye has not seen, nor the ear heard, neither it has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love Him." So, how I understand this verse is, this is a uh, a description of the inheritance that a believer has in Christ, that eternity in a glorified body, living with Christ, dwelling, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, his kingdom to come is so great, is so incredible that it no eye has seen nor heard nor has it even entered into our mind the wonders that God has in store for those who believe him. In other words, it's better than we can even Imagine. And, and what it underscores is the fact that we're going to continue learning, but we're not going to be inhibited or hindered by dark thinking or anything that would cloud our understanding. So you can't, pl- a, a finite human being cannot pl- plummet the depths of an infinite God. Hmm. It's going to take all eternity. I think that passage is actually speaking about eternity. We're going to be in a theater for the rest of our life learning. <laughs> I agree. All right. Uh, I feel like one of the reasons I started to walk away from Christianity was the prescription I got for dealing with doubt was to shut down that part of my brain and simply believe more. I don't think anyone on this panel would subscribe to that. No, no, no. No. Doubt is a doorway to asking questions. It's a doorway to doing the research. It's a doorway to looking into it. We live in a day and age where anybody can go on the Internet or go into Bible programs on their computer or whatever and do searches that used to take me and probably the guys up here hours and hours and hours to do. So there, I don't think there's a doubt issue that there isn't a biblical directive or answer for. And that's the type, here's the thing I found. When people have doubts, that's when you want to get into a small group and talk with other Christians who either have similar doubts or have found answers to these doubts. Well, the, the fact that people have doubts... It's what kind of a doubt do you have? In other right. words, is the doubt an excuse for you not to believe? Or is the doubt simply a reflection of you not having the information or the way in which you were brought up or the skepticism that's naturally in in your soul that can be overcome by the power of, of, of the Word of God that's living and active? Or is it, as I said at the beginning, is it doubt that you're using as an excuse not to believe? You know, the answer that the person has heard, and you're right, nobody here on on this panel would ever describe it that way at all, is kind of this phrase that, oh, you just need to have faith, or it's called blind faith, right? Mm -hmm. That faith uh, in God is like taking a giant leap in the dark or a giant leap with your eyes closed. Well, who who takes a giant leap with your eyes closed? No, God says in Isaiah 1, come, let us reason together. Faith in Christ is is a reasonable conclusion that he is who he says he was and that he died and rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And by the way, we can come to that conclusion very reasoned. Um, it All of the evidence, yeah. all of the testimony points that there's a God, there's a person named Jesus who walked the earth 2,000 years ago and rose again. That's the evidence. Yeah, it's not a blind leap of faith. Correct. It's an informed leap of exactly. faith. Exactly. Right. So look, when when every Christian has a certain um, a certain level of doubt, maybe it's a seed, maybe it's more than a seed. What I have found, the more I study God's Word, the more um, understanding I have of who God is, what who I am in Christ, 
and the my doubt diminishes and my faith grows. Absolutely. Mm. Here's a, a comment for clarity. Without the spirit speaking in tongues, just sounds like gibberish. It is almost like the reverse of what God did with the Tower of Babel. Hmm. Yeah, there's, <laughs> you know, uh, one of the issues that you can have, and and we talked about this a little bit at the break, I'll say it now, is that in some churches where speaking in tongues is kind of a requirement to prove that you're saved, well, what might happen? Well, if you belong to that church and you don't have the gift of tongues, which is given only by the Spirit as he determines, you might feel a a, a need to counterfeit or, or, mm-hmm. or whatever, the, the sign of tongue. Because if you don't, you're not saved. And, and, and so I think you can get gibberish or noises or clickings that aren't specifically languages, but some believe they're, they're other tongues. I, I, I think those might have the potential, I'm not saying in every case, have the potential of being false signs or false tongues, not the real thing. Mm-hmm. Will the millennial temple in Ezekiel 40 be part of the New Jerusalem? And will there be sacrifices in it? Good question. I think these are two separate things. The new Jerusalem comes at the end of the millennial reign when there's the new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. This is Revelation 21. The streets of gold that you don't... Who is the temple? Yes, it's God. God is the temple (laughs) and the Lamb is the temple. So there's no temple in the new Jerusalem. The Ezekiel temple is standing during the millennial reign and that is where Christ rules and reigns from. And it appears that there actually is sacrifice. And so, and the feasts and the festivals and sacrifice. And, and so the question is, and I've had this question, why? Why do we need sacrifices if Christ was the one sacrifice for all and sat down at the right hand of the Father? And the only answer I have, is see if you have a thought on this, is that it points back to the sacrifice of Christ just as the animal sacrifice is pointed forward to Christ before the cross. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, I don't... It's it's kind of an enigma as why there is described sacrifices in Ezekiel in that temple during the millennium. It is... Uh, in Scripture, Jesus tells his disciples that they are to understand, but he teaches in parables. So that must be that he wants to teach them in parables because he that that's, that's the way he chooses to teach. Well, he basically said the outsiders. Yeah. I speak to them in parables, but then to the disciples, he explained what the parables meant. Okay. We get the explanation, which is wonderful. Kind of like on kind of like on guy talk. That's exactly <laughs> it. You know, we call this the parable hour. So it, yeah. it works. The terrible hour. The parable. Oh, the yeah, parable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He actually answers this question, and and that if you if you want to understand. You will if you don't want to understand. You're not. You're not going to understand. Yeah. Well, so it also, it's the way in which he communicated. People didn't have the access to written documentation like we do today, and so he spoke in parables that illustrated a point because every parable has one interpretation. Yes. It's not allegorized where every aspect of it, like yeah. it would, what happened in the Roman Catholic Church in the medieval time, where they take apart a parable and everything had a spiritual significance. No, there's one interpretation, one message. I agree with that. And and also it compels you to lean forward to understand it. Because the first thing it does is it brings up a question in your mind, well, what what do you mean by that? And so it draws you closer in to be able to find the answer. The, the apostles would ask them those questions too. Well, what did you mean by that? And when I taught preaching and teaching, 
I had two requirements. Well, actually, I had one requirement in the sermon, but the sermon was make it biblical. Don't deviate from the scriptures. And you better have one or two good stories that people can remember because a parable is a story. And people remember stories. You go into any church today and you can say, hey, remember the parable, uh, you know, about the sheep and the goats? Most people, yeah, they can relate to that. Or the parable of the prodigal son, oh, yeah, you know, I was like that son at one time. But you ask them, well, what does it say in Hebrews 10, 42? And they just kind of look at it with a strange look. Mm-hmm. The point is the stories make a huge difference. And and I think that's what we want to help people understand. I'm preaching on First uh, Thessalonians 5 this week, and it says, Rejoice in the Lord always, you know, pray without ceasing uh, in all circumstances, uh, give thanks to the Lord. And we're talking about how do you do that? Because I'm using the Mission Impossible theme. You know, as human beings, we don't do that. But the Lord's power in us is what makes that happen. But it comes down to this. I've got a story, and it's a true story. Uh, a friend of mine uh, talking to me about he and his wife when they got married. They've been married a number of years. And I said, well, how did it happen? He said, it was kind of strange because the moment I met her, I knew this was the woman I wanted to marry, and, and I loved her. But she was dating another guy. So I didn't say a word. You know, I just waited. Well, finally, they broke up. And then I immediately went and asked her to go out, and she said no. And then a couple days later, I asked her to go out again. She said no. I said, how many times did she say no to you? Fifty times. But on 51st time, she said yes. And when I talked to his wife, she said, this was the best decision I ever made. I just didn't know it at the time. It is in the stories that people can relate to, and Scripture has so many avenues for stories that we need to be telling them to people yeah. so they remember. I'm listening to this story, and I'm thinking restraining order. <laughs> <laughs> Stalking. Yeah, something, I tell you. I didn't think it was going to quite go to 50 in that yeah, story. Yeah, I didn't either. All right, we'll take a short break and be back, but let me know what questions you have. 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. We want to pray for you. We all need prayer. We would love to pray for you. The Faith Radio team is serious about prayer, and we pray for specific listener requests every week. Share your prayer request with us anonymously and securely on our website at myfaithradio.com. Welcome to Guy Talk, or guys who talk. I've got Greg B., Tom P., Jeff V. That's the team. They're in the same seats they always sit, <laughs> which is actually quite helpful for me. You always sit in the same seat, I do. too, Bill. This is oh. the host seat. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm looking up, I'm busy looking up John 12, 47. So that's the next question. John 12, 47. It says, if anyone hears my words, but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. If anyone hears my words, but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. John 12, 47, who, who judges us? That's the question. Well, his, it, it, the caveat is is what follows at, at the end of that statement where he says, here's my words and does not keep them. I do not judge him for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Mm-hmm. So he was single focused like a laser beam on what God had called him to do in the world. Like. I agree. That's right where my mind went too. I did not come to condemn the world, right? In his first coming, 
because he says the world stands condemned already, mm-hmm. right? Because you have not believed in God's one and only Son. So in his first coming, he doesn't. He came to die for sins of the world and be the Savior of the world. Yeah. However, he there is a second coming in which he is going to judge the world. So yeah. I think you can understand that in exactly that context. And this is about his first yeah. coming. Yeah, God I, judges and the Holy Spirit convicts. And so Christ came to save. Hmm. You look at how much... Um, slander there is in our our media about Jesus, how much fun is made of his name, how his name is used improperly. I think most people in this culture don't believe they're going to be held accountable. They don't believe there's going to be a judgment one day. Jesus is saying, look, my first coming was to save you, and that's why I came. My second coming, I'm coming as the warrior, you know, with the great double-edged sword coming out of my mouth, and you will be judged. Get right with me now. Well, mm-hmm. everybody wants to embrace him as the Lamb of God, but they want to stay away from him because he's the Lion of Judah. Yeah, you got that right. You know, the first time he came as a little innocent baby and riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, and he died for the sins of the world as the Lamb of God. At the second coming, he comes riding on a white horse. Mm-hmm. His eyes are ablaze. He has a sword coming out, out of his mouth. His robe is dressed in, dipped in blood on his robe and on his thigh. He has this name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And scripture says he treads the winepress of the wrath of God Almighty. He doesn't come as a baby the second time. Mm-hmm. That's why I love Hebrews 10. Is it 31? Powerful verse. It is a terrible thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And that's who Jesus is. You want to be right with him when you meet him. Amen. Well, Not the other way around. Uh, title of that famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands that's of an it. Angry Amen. God. Yeah. 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 So when the wise men brought gifts to Jesus, do you think they said, just to be clear, this is Christmas and birthday present? <laughs> 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 I mean, because, you know, I feel sorry for people that have birthdays on Christmas. Yeah. Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. It's a rough one. See, you're yeah. still coming up with one-liners that are great. Yeah. <laughs> All right, this is a little bit of a deeper dive, so let's look at Revelations 3, 5. Um, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So I think we've had this conversation, Greg, before. Is your name written in the book of life and then never blotted out, or does it start in the book of life and those who don't come to faith have their name blotted out. Well, see, the the, the latter one is what we really explored in, in depth, that everybody's name is initially written in the book of life, and then uh, depending on their uh, commitment to Christ or their lack of commitment to Christ will determine whether or not it's withdrawn or taken out. Or why would there even be the phrase blotting if there was a chance that, no, you're only put in there as soon as you're saved, then the, the word seems to be out of place. So that's what many biblical scholars talk about, where we're all in the book of life, but our name is removed when we reject Christ. But it fits with the statement that it is the Lord's will that all be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Mm-hmm. The only reason you're not going to be in the kingdom of God one day is going to be your fault, because Jesus has done everything to bring you in. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So the the... You know, theologically, there's two options with the book of life. One, everybody's written in it, and the unbelievers are blotted out, and what's left is just the believers. Or, only the believers are in the Lamb's book of life. Those are the only names ever written in it before the foundation of the world. 
Um, and at the end, it's their names are still there. Either way, this is kind of like the Mary's egg debate as well. You know, it's an interesting conversation, and there's some passages, and people believe mm-hmm. one way or another. In the end, the, under those two scenarios, the book is the same at the end. When the world is judged and their names are not found yep. in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's, that's, the, that's it. I had a nice old lady say to me one day after I preached, you know, there are going to be many crowns in heaven for you. And I told her, like Noah's Ark, I want to just get in the door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, one of my guests said that he th- thinks Christmas is the greatest time machine out there because we have similar traditions and celebrations and songs. And is there any particular Christmas song you love more than others? Oh, gee whiz. I mean, when you when you smell certain baked goods or you or you see a Christmas tree go up, your memories get triggered so fast, don't they? Oh, yeah, it's, absolutely. It is a great time machine. Oh, it is. Yeah. My two favorites are Oh, Holy Night. Okay. And that uh, the one song, Mary, Did You Know? Mm-hmm. Yes. That's, Mary, did you that's know that when you kiss Mary, you this know? little baby, that's you kiss the, ba- yeah. the, the face of God? Mary, did you know that the baby that you're holding will, uh, that you deliver, the baby, that, the child that you delivered, will soon deliver you. Oh, Mary, did you know that the child you hold is the great I am? I love that. Song. Yeah, it's a great yeah. cartoon I saw. I thought Bill wrote it because it said, you know, do you know the answers to Mary, did you know? And then down below it goes, yes, yes, no, 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 yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and what about you, Greg? Well, that's it. Mary, did you okay, know? That yeah. would be the one. I love that, that one. That would definitely uh, be I like one. that. That's more of a contemporary song, too. It is. And Mark, yeah. Mark Lowry wrote that song. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. It's, I, know, it's, I know Mark. Actually, made him a lot of money. Did you really? Yeah. I mean, I know Mark. It's a tell him that it's a. It, it is it's just, a, he it knows. touches my yeah, soul no, every he, time he, I hear. He knows. It. He knows. He struck gold on that yeah. one. I mean, oh, yeah. just yeah. the way that got into the psyche of people. It's a, such a gorgeous song. Great song. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you've got twelve trees now up at your house. Greg? Yes. Twelve. 12 trees. My wife. Uh, goes crazy of various sizes in all of the different rooms. We've got a, a fairly large home, yeah. but I mean, there's trees everywhere, but they're decorated. They have different themes, every yeah. one of them. When yeah. you said you, my wife goes crazy, it, I would have agreed after two trees. <laughs> <laughs> She's at 12. Well, I, I was kind of expecting two weeks ago, it was 11. Last week, no, was 12. she got was, another one. I was expecting you, more. Uh, goodwill is the bane of my existence. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, gentlemen, thank you so much. That wraps up Guide Talk. I am so glad that you sent in questions. You made it uh, a wonderful couple hours. Thank you for uh, being with us. We love you, and we hope you have a wonderful night, and we'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.